We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, which is also about babies coming. Our study in the Gospel of Luke, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a remarkable text this morning. Remember two weeks ago, we met Zechariah and Elizabeth, that godly old couple who were miraculously given a son to prepare the way for the great work of God. The angel promised it to them. Then last week, we met Mary. We met Mary, a young virgin girl and relative of Elizabeth, who herself, of course, would give birth to the Messiah. This week, as we continue in Luke 1, we're going to see the stories of Mary and Elizabeth converge in a powerful way, because the same angel had visited them both, and though Mary had not asked for a sign, the angel gave her a sign anyway. He told her about Elizabeth's pregnancy, which at that point was six months along. And after giving herself to the Lord and trusting in his promises, the first thing we read is that Mary went to go see Elizabeth, and then they shared together in a conversation that is just incredible. So let's look at it. Our text this morning is Luke 1, 39 through 56, and I will read through the entire thing here, and you can follow along in your Bible if you would like. Luke 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word which is given to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, to whom your word points. And we pray now that as we consider your word together, would we together be pointed to Jesus Christ through the words of Luke, the words of Elizabeth, the words of Mary. May these things bring you glory. May they bring us joy. And may they draw us into fellowship with one another and with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we got a good text to cover this morning, Luke 1, 39 through 56. And the very first thing we read in this passage is in verse 39, that in those days Mary arose and went with haste to go and see her relative Elizabeth. Now we don't know exactly where Elizabeth lived, but somewhere it says in the hill country of Judah. And so to get from Nazareth to where that was, it would have been probably about 60 miles so Mary takes off on a several days journey, but she has to do this. 
Right? She's excited. She's been given word of her miraculous pregnancy. She's heard of her relative's miraculous pregnancy, and she has to bring these worlds together. She's excited to see what the Lord is doing. She's probably also eager to visit somebody and to rejoice in the miracle of what is happening with her and to commiserate with her in their similar circumstances. So Mary goes, and she comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, and it says in verse 41 that when Elizabeth heard her voice, it says that the baby leaped in her womb. He like leaped, he jumped. We don't, I don't know what that means. We know that it's normal, right, for healthy babies to move inside of the womb. They move, they kick, and so almost certainly by this point, Elizabeth had felt her baby move, she had felt her baby kick, but this, whatever it was, was something different. It was a notable kick. It was an affirmation of Mary's special pregnancy and of the baby she was carrying, and this is the first fulfillment of back in verse 15 when it said that the baby born to Elizabeth, John, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. So even in his mother's womb, he would be tested to the work of God, and here he does that. He's like kick prophesying of the arrival of the Son of God. The Son of God shows up with him. He can't say anything, but he's just going to leap. He's going to kick. He's doing something there. And then Elizabeth herself joins in, though probably without as much kicking or leaping at this point in her life. But she does her best. She joins in. It says that she also is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so she blesses Mary. Blessed are you among women. She blesses Jesus. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then, most notably, she rightly identifies Jesus. Look at verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then she explains how her baby leaping confirmed this to her, that the mother of her Lord had come to her. This is an amazing statement the mother of my Lord. She recognized that the one that Mary carried in her womb was in fact God in the flesh. It's remarkable, and there's really no honest way around reading anything else into the text. This is what she meant here. You'll sometimes hear people say things like, oh, uh, the idea of Jesus being divine or being the Son of God, being God in the flesh, is not even in the earlier Gospels. It's something that's unique to the Gospel of John, like John invented this, and then later people hopped on to the trend or something like that. But don't listen to those people. Like, John probably communicates the deity of Christ more clearly than any other gospel writers, but it's not like it's absent elsewhere. And this is probably the most clear statement of it in all of Luke's gospel. When Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord, why has the mother of my Lord come to me? And some people will say, well, don't you know that Lord is just a generic term? And though it can refer to God, it doesn't have to refer to God. It can just mean an earthly master. And this is true. The language can be used in that way. It's true, but it's not honest. Because how did Elizabeth use the word Lord? Go back and look at verse 25. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago that Elizabeth went when she was pregnant and she hid herself and she said, thus 
has the Lord done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people? She recognized that God had given this baby to her, that God had taken away her shame, God had taken away her reproach. And so when she refers to the Lord in verse 25, clearly she's talking about God. And then again in verse 45, when she blesses Mary, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Right? A fulfillment of promise, a fulfillment of prophecy. This is again a clear reference to God. And so Elizabeth believed that God was the one who had taken away her shame. She believed that God was the one who had made promises to Mary and was at work in her. And now she says, I get to be in the presence of that God in the flesh. The mother of my Lord is here. The mother of my God. God is there in the flesh, though he is very small, though he is still in the womb of his mother Mary. And it's not only Elizabeth that uses the word Lord in this way. In fact, all through Luke 1 and 2, this word Lord is used a bunch. I went through and counted them up. It is used 27 times in Luke 1 and 2, which is kind of its own unit in the Gospel of Luke. And 25 of those verses are clearly and unequivocally referring to God, and the other two are referring to Jesus, often right alongside the ones that are referring to God. So we can try to work our way around that, or we can believe what Luke is clearly trying to tell us, that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that the church believed this from the very beginning. It was not something that they developed. It was something that they always knew from the point when the Gospels were written. And from Jesus's earliest human existence here in the womb, he has identified as the eternal God who made the universe, who blesses his people, who takes away their shame, who makes and keeps promises to them. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more important that we can learn about the baby in Mary's womb than this. As we read last week, he is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. This means that he is of the same substance, the same essence as God. But we see now that Mary is called his mother, so he is the Son of Mary. He is also human. He is of the same substance and the same essence as his mother. He is fully God and fully man, and that's why he can save us from our sins. It's why he can take our place willingly. It's why he can die for our sins and make us holy. As the great church father Athanasius said in the fourth century, he said, Jesus became what we are so that he might make us what he is. And in becoming what we are, Jesus did not stop being what he is. He's fully God, fully man, a hundred percent of both. The math doesn't work, but it's God, so it does. Our own doctrinal statement affirms all this. Our confession of faith as a church, which is drawn from the old New Hampshire confession, we say this, we say, we believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon him our nature, born of a virgin yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal personal obedience, and by his death made full atonement for our sins, that having been risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven, and uniting in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. Jesus is qualified to be our Savior because he has combined in his person the tenderest compassion of humanity and the divine perfection 
of God. He is fully God, fully man. Elizabeth recognized this. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I love this. I love that this is born out of this conversation that these two women are having. This is a great example of what can come when women meet up and do good, practical, applicational theology together. You get a great affirmation of the Son of God, the most clear one in all of Luke's gospel, and it comes from this conversation from two women. I once worked under a pastor, and there was word in our church of some theological discussion that was taking place at a women's Bible study. And this had come to the ears of the pastors, and I think it was on the extent of the atonement or something like that. And I remember this pastor saying to me, he said, well... I'm not sure that should be discussed at a women's Bible study. This is a pulpit issue, which I think meant he was the only one that was allowed to talk about it. It's like, women shouldn't be talking about this. Well, that's bogus. Like, look what happens when women talk theology. You get beautiful affirmation of the deity of Christ. Luke, in fact, has sometimes been called the gospel of women because of the prominent role of women in his gospel, which makes sense because Luke's focus is on those who are marginalized, those who are outside of the expected circles. And in those days, that was certainly true of women. And so here's an example of Luke's focus on women. The most profound statement about Jesus's identity in Luke's gospel comes from a godly old woman before he was even born, but she was spirit-filled, and she was making an effort to encourage a young relative who was in a very blessed but very difficult spot. But we should ask ourselves, how did Elizabeth know this? How did she know that the one in Mary's womb was her Lord? And we say maybe she inferred it from what Zechariah had been told. Maybe he wrote down what he was told, and she learned, you know, that her child would go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Maybe she gathered from that statement that Jesus was the Lord that would come after her son John. But really, beyond that, it's the fact that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's that God's Holy Spirit revealed this truth to her. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that, I, or who do people say that I am? And then he asked, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that answered rightly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, and he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And surely that's the case with Elizabeth. God showed her this. God, and so she proclaimed it, and Mary heard it from her. And that continues today. If we are to rightly recognize Jesus for who he is, it will take a work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Apostle Paul tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And obviously, he doesn't just mean forming those sounds with your mouth. Anybody could do that. He means that it is actually believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he is God in the flesh, that he is our Savior, our Messiah. To really believe that must be a work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
So we ask, how does someone go from being unable to see Jesus for who he is to seeing him as Lord and submitting their life to him? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit of God has to bring them to that point. And he will do that through the means of the word preached, through the means of evangelistic efforts, through the prayers of his people. But it will be God who does the work. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he said, even if our gospel is veiled, like people can't see the truth of it, he said, it is veiled to those who are perishing because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he says this, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a creative work of God, just as he created light at the beginning of time. It's a creative work of God to allow people to see Christ rightly and to submit to him as Lord. So if you are a Christian and you are sharing Christ with someone and they are just not getting it, and keep praying as you share. Don't believe that it's your work that will get them there. Keep trusting God to do his work in his time. He will shine in people's hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit so that they can see Christ as Lord. And if he doesn't, there's no hope of it anyway. And clearly we see here in our text that God had shown into Elizabeth's heart because she rightly identifies who Jesus was. Even the baby Jesus, even in utero Jesus, she says he is my sovereign Lord, and she tells Mary this. And we'll get to Mary's response here in a moment. But let's take another minute to think about the environment in which Mary's response was produced. Remember, the angel had told Mary last week that she... She said what would be happening to her, that she would bear a son. Even though she was a virgin, she would give birth to the Son of God. And then the last thing we left, or that we read in our passage last week, is that the angel departed from her. He left. And now she's the only one who knows this. And she has to walk this path alone. And sometimes the Christian life can feel just like that. And we have to be ready for that, right? That if no one else comes along, we have to walk faithfully with Christ. You know the old hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's that verse, right? Though none go with me, still I will follow. Even if nobody is walking alongside me, I will walk and be faithful and follow Christ. But honestly, it's very rare that that is the case because God gives us others to walk alongside of us. He gives us the church in our day. You might feel alone sometimes in your faith. Maybe you feel alone in your family. Maybe you feel alone at your workplace, whatever it may be, but you are not alone. You don't have to be alone. Connect yourselves to others. Allow them to speak into your life. Allow them to affirm where they see God's grace demonstrating itself in you. Allow them to encourage you, to build you up, to instruct you, and to pray for you. Elizabeth does all of these things for Mary. She says, you are blessed, and so is your baby, right? Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Jesus was blessed because of who he is. In his very nature, he is blessed. He is God in the flesh. But Mary, why was she blessed? Elizabeth said in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary was blessed because she believed, 
It's interesting, later in Luke's gospel in chapter 11, someone comes along and says to him basically the same thing that Elizabeth said to Mary. Someone comes to Jesus and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus dismisses this. He says, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And he wasn't dismissing his mother there. He wasn't saying that his mother wasn't blessed, but he was saying that the reason anyone is blessed by God, including his mother, is because they hear and believe and keep the word of God. And this is exactly what Mary did as Elizabeth affirms. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So we have this great environment of these women speaking together, encouraging each other's hearts with truth. And out of this environment of shared belief and affirmation, God produces something remarkable in Mary. And from verses 46 through 55, we have Mary erupting into this song of praise, a passage that is commonly known as the Magnificat. And you say, why is it known as that? That's because the first word of that is Magnificat in its Latin translation, so it's become known as that. So Mary speaks here, and her song is an amazing thing. Honestly, you could do an entire preaching series on Mary's song here because she is weaving in a bunch of biblical references, Old Testament allusions and citations all through this, this, this song that she has. It shows that Mary was a young woman who had listened to the word of God. She clearly knew her Bible. We heard earlier this morning, we read together from 1 Samuel 2 and the prayer of Hannah, and that's the most clear echo you can see in this work. If you look at it and compare it to what we read this morning, you'll see a bunch of similarities between the two. But there are many others. I pulled up an academic paper on this subject and, you know, let someone else do the work for me on that, but this guy had researched it and he said that there are many possible illusions and he referenced possible illusions in these 10 verses, not only to 1 Samuel, but also to Genesis, Ezra, Deuteronomy, Zephaniah, Job, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micah, and Psalms. And from the Psalms, that's 10 different books of the Bible. And from the Psalms, he says, I could find references to nine different Psalms in just these verses. So you say this is a Bible-saturated, well-informed, God-glorifying song. Mary had read the Bible. She had absorbed the Bible. She knew the promises of God, and now they come out of her for others. She gets filled up with them, and they pour out to others. And we don't actually know, I think, exactly how this song came about. Like, is what we read this morning an exact recounting of their conversation? Were these the literal next words out of her mouth after Elizabeth spoke to her and Mary just erupted into these verses? Like, maybe. Or was this a summary of what she was feeling that she later put together? Like, maybe that too. It's written in this poetic form, and actually some of Elizabeth's words were in poetic form, but we don't know if they were, like, speaking in poem to each other or erupting in song to each other like a you know musical theater here but maybe I don't know but regardless of how this came about we have here a great summary of what Mary was thinking at the time and we'll see in this that she has great hope in the power and grace of God and that she sees that in both her own life and in God's wider work in the world look again at verses 46 through 50 And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. So we see Mary here rejoicing 
because of what God had done for her. We talked about this last week. Who was she? Who was Mary? She was a nobody. She was, as she says in verse 48, of humble estate. She was insignificant. And now she sees that she is playing one of the most important roles in all of world history. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. But look at the personal nature of what she's saying in verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Not just he's done great things, he's done great things for me, for little insignificant Mary. It says, and holy is his name, but he's done this for me. A holy God, but he cares about me. A great God, but he's aware of me. A powerful God, and he's worked on my behalf. He's looking out for me. And she's not exalting herself here in any, any way. As she makes clear in verse 50, she says, and even though nobody else will ever be the mother of Jesus, she says, all can know this mercy of God right? His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. All can know God's care and attention and help and concern for them. God is gracious and good and merciful, and everyone who comes to him with fear, that sort of holy reverence and worship and trust and submission, that recognition that he is your Lord and King and you are submitting to him, you too will receive that mercy from him from generation to generation, she says. What she's saying is, it's not just for me, it's for everyone in all places, all times. It doesn't expire. It doesn't run out. You can turn to God. You can receive God's mercy. But you might say, I'm not so sure about me, because who am I to follow Christ? And maybe you even think, I'm not so sure. I don't come from a Christian upbringing. I don't feel at ease in the church. I don't get how it works. I don't really fit in or speak the same way. Or Christianity is for better people than me holier people than me, more religious people than me, kinder people than me, whatever the case. But if you're thinking anything like that, then the next part of this song is for you, because Mary expresses her hope here that God is turning everything upside down. God is doing unexpected things. He's going to work in ways that people would not see coming. He's going to bring his power and his grace and his mercy through the unexpected. Look over verses 51 through 53. She says that God in his strength is bringing down the humble or the proud and the powerful, and he's lifting up the poor and the humble. She says those who are rich, who have much, will go away empty-handed. Those who are hungry will be filled. It's a great reversal of things. Everything is switching course. Everything is being turned upside down. And Mary's own life is an example of this. She's like, what God is doing in my own life is what he's going to do in all the world. Do you see the use of that phrase, humble estate, in both verses 48 and 52? Mary had said in verse 48 that God is looked on my own humble estate. And then she says, what he's done for me, he will do for everyone of humble estate. He has exalted those of humble estate in verse 52. All those who humble themselves before the Lord. All those who recognize that they can bring nothing to God and that they have nothing without him. So Mary is using herself as an example of what God will do for everyone. He will take anyone who humbles himself before him, and he will raise them up. He will save you from your sins when you humble yourself before him, when you confess your sins, when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Mary had other children, of course, after Jesus. One of them was named James, and he wrote a letter that made its way into the New Testament, and in that letter he said, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
Mary had taught all of her sons well. But Mary's song here is not just about personal salvation. The last two verses make that clear, if it wasn't already, right? He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. There are like nationalistic elements to this prayer. Mary's not unlike her fellow countrymen in that day in that she expected the Messiah to come to throw off the oppression of Rome, to bring freedom to Israel, and to bring God's people to this state of blessed enjoyment of the great promises that were made to them in the Old Testament, that they would be joyfully in their land, unoppressed by others, and faithful to their God. And so in those verses, she's probably not looking primarily at personal salvation. She's looking at a broader work. There's even this like decidedly political element to what she's saying there, right? And this also shows some evidence of the legitimacy of this passage. Like it wasn't something that somebody made up and added in later. We see that Mary at this point thought as many of her country people did, but she knew her Bible well. She knew that God had promised not only to bring salvation for sins, but that he would bring justice and freedom for his people and elimination of oppression and injustice throughout the world. And she wasn't aware, we would see, it would seem, as most in her day were not aware, that Christ would come twice, right? Once to make atonement for sins, and then again to set all things right for eternity. Once to free us from our sins and make us the adopted sons and daughters of God. And then again to free all of creation from its futility. The first coming happened. We are still waiting for the second coming of Christ. And most of Mary's hopes in this prayer are bound up in the second coming of Christ. So we can keep looking to this prayer for our own hope. Because Jesus in his first coming did not bring down the proud and rich and mighty from their thrones and their places of power. In fact, they used those positions of power to put him to death. Quite the opposite, in some ways, of Mary's prediction. And though Jesus gave foretastes of the fulfillment of these prophecies, like in feeding the hungry, welcoming the outcast, lifting up the poor, Jesus left then, and the hungry were not fed forever. They were still hungry. The poor we still have with us. So what does that mean? It means that we are still called to the same hope that Mary had. Do you long still for a world of perfect justice? Do you long to see the humble exalted and the arrogant humbled? Do you long to see those who abuse power and hurt others and bring injustice stopped forever? Do you want to see those things? Then look to Jesus. Look to the sure and certain hope that Jesus brings. Look at how Mary phrases her prayer there, beginning in verse 51. She says that God has shown his power. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has sent away the rich. He has helped Israel. He has fulfilled all his promises. Mary speaks of all these things as if they are already done, finished, completed. But is she talking about things that God did in the past here? I don't think that she is. She is talking about things that God has yet to do, but he has promised to do them, and so she speaks of them as if they had already happened. And this is a common thing in the Bible. It's not just here. When Paul wrote in Romans, and he was writing to Christians, and he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He says, if you've been justified by God, that means you've been declared righteous and forgiven of your sins 
through Jesus. And then Paul says, if this is the case with you, then you have also been glorified. That means that you've been made perfectly like Jesus in his resurrection, without sin forever, unable to die. But you know that that is not your lived experience. You still sin, and someday you will die. But it, So it hasn't happened yet. But God has promised that it will happen. So in Paul's mind, it has already happened. You have been justified. You are already glorified. Make that the case in your mind too. If God has promised something in his word, it is as good as done. And God has promised that he will overthrow the proud and wicked that he will exalt the humble and the poor, and he'll do this all through Jesus. And so in Mary's mind, with the coming of Jesus on the horizon, all of this has already happened. She's not delusional. She knows what her current state is. She's not delusional. She is hopeful. Right? Israel is still oppressed. The wicked are still in power. Mary herself is still poor. And yet, she hopes that these things will not always be true because God has promised that these things will not always be true. Therefore, to her, they simply are not true. Even in the present, they are no longer true. There's a quote that is sometimes attributed to John Lennon. I can't seem to source it, so I don't know who made it up. You know, if you want to spread a quote like on the internet, just say someone famous said it. You know, John Lennon, C.S. Lewis... You know, if you want Reformed Baptists, say Spurgeon said it, people will spread it around. There's a quote that's attributed to John Lennon, so maybe he said it. But somebody said this, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. And that's true in Christ. Christ will right all wrongs. He will bring perfect justice. He'll wipe every tear from every eye. And if you say that's not the case, then it's not the end of the story. There's still more to come. And this is the hope that we need. This is the hope that allows us to survive and to live rightly in the world. This is the hope that keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus no matter what happens. It's not, maybe Jesus will fix all of this someday. Maybe Jesus will fix me someday. It's not that. It's he already has. He's already fixed everything. He's already fixed you. He's already fixed the world through his coming, through his death, through his resurrection, the scripture says he disarmed the rulers and authorities of evil and he put them to open shame he triumphed over them and he will finish all of that he will make it our lived experience he will do it in his time and while we wait for that we hope but we hope with the certainty of something already done but it is a hope because it is not yet our lived experience in Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Saga books one of the characters makes a remarkably insightful statement about hope he says, when you run out of hope, everything is backwards, and your heart wants the opposite of what it needs. Think about that again. When you run out of hope, everything is backwards. Your heart wants the opposite of what it needs. And I think that that is so true. When we don't have a proper hope, we get all twisted around. But when we put our hope and our trust in the promises of God, it centers us, it grounds us, it directs us. This is true on a personal level. This is true on a wider level. On a personal level, our hope must be in Jesus Christ. Can you say with Elizabeth, 
that the one born of Mary is your Lord, is your trust in Jesus Christ? Are you looking to him alone for your salvation? Do you believe that he is who the scriptures say, that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead? Can you say with Mary that through Christ, God has looked on your humble estate? Have you humbled yourself before him to receive the salvation that he offers? And on that wider level, are you trusting in Christ to bring perfect justice and everlasting peace to our world? Do you believe not only that he came once to die for sins, but that he will come again to right all wrongs and free the whole world from its suffering? Can you say with Mary that he has already brought down the mighty and he has already helped the poor because you trust in his promises? Are these your great hopes? both for yourself and for the world? Are you living in light of this hope? It is really hard to live as people of hope because we live in a world that pushes against these hopes and chips away at them constantly and repeatedly in ways that we don't even see in so many ways. But when our hopes are rightly focused, we begin to want the right things. In the book of Titus, Paul says that God's grace has appeared, that it's training us to renounce ungodliness and to live holy lives. And we do this, he says, while waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Titus 2, 11 to 14. He says it's the waiting that makes us holy. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to do all that he said he would, then your life today will begin to reflect that. The Apostle John says the same thing, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. He says, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's like when you see Jesus finally and fully in eternity, you'll be made just like him, perfectly righteous. And so if you hope in this, you'll start doing it now. He says, your hope will lead you to these right things. And that's true in our personal life. It's also true beyond. It's hope that gives us what we need to fight for justice, for mercy, for what's right. It's when we have the hope of Mary for perfect justice from the hand of God that we can pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and begin to live it out. It's hard sometimes, though, to live with these hopes. It's hard to remain hopeful, but in our passage today, we are given two reminders on how to stay hopeful. One is from Mary. We see there that her hymn is, is true, and she can be so certain that it's true that she can speak of future things in the past tense, and she can be so certain because she drew, like, all of it from the Bible. So you want to be a person of hope. You want to be a person who orders their, right, their, their life rightly and has these hopes and then, you know, purifies herself in accordance with hopes. What is our key to becoming hopeful? It's to get into your Bible, to learn the promises of God. How can you have hope in the promises of God if you don't know what they are? So learn to read your Bible. Learn the promises of God. The Apostle Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through his promises. So get to know his promises. Learn to read your Bible. Practice reading your Bible. Not sure where to start? Not sure how to? Ask somebody here who's a member of this church, and they will help you, or they will point you to somebody who can. And that brings me to my second point on how to maintain hope. 
And we see this in our passage as well. It's be around others who remind you of the goodness of God and of his promises. That's what Mary and Elizabeth did for each other. Elizabeth got to hear all these great words from Mary, but only after Mary had heard from her first. She heard a reminder from Elizabeth that her son was her Lord, that Jesus was God, that there's blessing and obedience and faith. So get around people who will remind you of these things. Keep coming to church. Don't leave when we're done. Have lunch with us. And then get to know people through the week. Invite invite somebody out, join a community group, get connected to other believers who will encourage you. Let God speak to you through his word and through his people. Learn the promises of God. Believe that he will keep them. Grow in hope, the hope that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. This is our sure and certain hope. So lean into that. Let it shape you as a person. And let's turn our hearts now to God in that assurance of hope. Let's pray together, and then I'll invite Seth to come up to lead us in communion. Another thing that we practice with great hope for what Christ has done and for what he has yet to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great words of this passage. We thank you for the witness of Mary and the witness of Elizabeth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is your son, that he is God in the flesh. And God, so we come and we ask him to save us. We ask that we would follow him for who he is as our Lord and as our Savior, that we would trust in Jesus Christ to right all wrongs in the world and to right all wrongs in our own hearts, to cleanse us from all our sins. And God, may that be our great hope. Because Christ has died, has risen, and will come again, God, may we trust in his work for us and in his work for the world. May our hope be so sure and so certain that we can say with the Apostle Paul that we are already glorified. And God, that we can say with Mary that you have brought down the proud. You have exalted the humble. You have made all things right in the world because we have seen that Jesus Christ has died for us and has risen again. And as we come now to your table, we pray, God, that you would impress this upon our hearts in a unique way again this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.